episode of boagworld.com, a podcast for all those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul Boag and unfortunately joining me is Marcus Lillington. Hello Marcus. Unfortunately, that's nice. Yeah. We'll start the day. Well, it's always you. <laughs> oh, don't cry. It's always you, every week. Why can't it be, um, uh, and my name's Paul Boag and joining me today is Cameron Diaz. In your dreams. It'd be a lot better, mine, wouldn't it? It would be a lot better, yeah. We'd get yeah. a lot more listeners for a start. <laughs> I think you might be able to get Chris on the show, maybe. Well, actually, saying that, you'd probably have to drag him in by his hair, screaming. Yeah, he hates coming on the show. I think it's high time we got back, and probably people can't remember back as far back as episode eight or whatever it was last time he was on. But um, he's he's um, our sort of um, managing director of Headscape, and we managed to drag him on to a couple of early shows. And people liked him. They liked the yes. way he kind of whispered in the corner. Yes, but that's what he does. He sits in the corner whispering, which is <laughs> kind of off-putting after a while. A great guy. I love him to bits. And people will remember him mainly because we're rude about him most weeks. But he's not Cameron Diaz, is he? Let's face no, no, it. he's not. He's got a new laptop, though, and is moaning incessantly about it. Why is he moaning about it? Because he, re- he has to install lots of stuff. Oh, bless. Yeah. He's no pleasing, that man. It's taken him, like, eight years to buy a new laptop. And he, he was always moaning about the old one and going, you know, how sacrificial he was having an old laptop. And then he gets a new one and he doesn't like that either. Yeah, he's got nothing to moan about. That's it's the, the Scottish bit in him. That's what it is. Ooh. Whole Careful. nation of moaners they are. <laughs> Oh, who else do you want to have a go at while you're here? Well, the Americans, obviously. Obviously, yeah. Um, and then most of Europeans as well. Especially the French. Anyway, on this week's show, I will be talking about um, uh, branding online. How to take an existing style guide and move it onto the internet. Marcus, you're doing something about information architecture, is that right? Yes, I'm going to talk about doing a review of an existing website. Ooh, of the information architecture of an existing website. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah, said okay. So I thought I could kind of not repeat that bit of the sentence, you know. Okay, well, you know, you, you can be a bit vague sometimes. <laughs> now, like a, a, a senile old man that, that only says half of his sentences. Anyway, and Ian Lloyd is also going to be on the show. Ian Lloyd is an accessibility um, expert, and it's really good to have him on the show because he is going to um, give us a kind of sneak peek um, at a screen reader. Now, I'm going to make the assumption that um, some of you that are listening to this show have never heard a screen reader in action. Um, And so we're going to make you endure that pain as part of today's show. It's a very hard thing to listen to. I remember the first time I listened to to a screen reader, it was like, oh, dear. It's like pulling teeth. 
Yes, it is very, very hard. Ian really likes my jokes, if I remember rightly. He he made a point <laughs> of telling me how much he liked them when, when yeah. I met him. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Was he drunk at the time? Well, he was, but he actually said he didn't like them. Even uh, more so, probably, actually. Mm. Yeah, most of the times when I meet Ian, he seems to be drunk. But I should, probably shouldn't say that. I, it, probably just the environments I meet him in, and not yeah. a reflection on his alcoholic nature. Anyway, and now so I've seen sort of the French, the Germans. Oh, no, I didn't do the Germans. So I just thought that. The well, Americans. the whole of Europe, you said. Oh, the whole of Europe. The Scottish uh, and then Ian Lloyd as well. It's a good probably, start to the show. Probably not including um, England in, in Europe as a proper sort of... Uh, oh, no, no. Well, we're not well, part of Europe. <laughs> God save the Queen and all that. Anyway, let's move on to the news before this gets any worse. All right. Okay, so before we get into the industry-related news stories, I wanted to just share a little bit of personal news. Um, I have signed a contract to write a book, which is very exciting. Hey, I'm going to be an author. That makes I wonder me really what you're important. going to say then, Paul. Bit of personal oh, news. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got this itchy infection. That, um... <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to be writing a book primarily aimed at website owners um uh oh website managers i guess is the right term rather than maybe website designers however to be honest i think it could potentially appeal to both audiences um and i i guess the core of the book is that i'm um, gonna look at what the client needs to know about building and running a website so that hopefully um it should show examples about how to communicate and work with clients that web designers will appreciate as well as obviously website managers. But the most exciting part of this book and the reason that I'm kind of bringing it up now on the show is the fact that um, I want to write it as a kind of collaborative process with you, the kind of Boag World listeners and the Boag World community. Um, and so there is going to be the opportunity for you to get hold of chapters before they're kind of actually published. So they're going to be released online before they're actually published. So that that's one quite interesting thing because then you can read them and you can comment on them and hopefully we can get a bit of feedback and make any changes and stuff like that. I'm also going to be blogging on various aspects um, of the book as I'm writing it. And I really want to encourage you to kind of share your thoughts and make suggestions about what you think ought to be in the book. And you can do that through kind of comments on the blog posts that I make and also through the Bioguard forum. And so I've already set up a forum thread dedicated to um, ideas of what should be in the book. And also um, I've done an initial blog post that you can comment on. Now, um, so to get a hold of those, you can just go to bioguard.com forward slash podcast, select show 86 um, and you'll find links to both that forum thread and the initial blog post. Now, it's obviously... Noting, so, sorry, sorry uh, Paul. So it's worth noting that every chapter that goes out will be edited by me, so basically I'll be rewriting it all, um, which is, I think will make it, obviously, at least 100% better. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> obviously, writing a book is a really slow process. I'm just ignoring you entirely now, Marcus. In fact, I might as well turn you off. Can I mute you? Is there a button to mute you? I'll, f I'll find it in a minute. Obviously, writing a book is an extremely slow process, and so um, I think it's going to take time for this to appear, and, and it's massively premature of me to even mention it on the show, but I'm excited about it, and hopefully you guys can get excited about it too. Anyway, enough of my personal news. Go Let's trip. move. Sorry, Marcus. 
it's just an ego trip. It's Paul has to say, I'm writing a book, I'm, I'm going to be an author. Isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I admit that. <laughs> so what? So what? I've got Nothing. a huge inflated ego. Everybody that listens to this show knows that. Anyway, I'm moving <laughs> on to industry news because your Morning. snide and silly comments are not helping the, uh, the professionalism of the show. News and events. Building, the, uh, building for the iPhone is my first news story. Unsurprisingly, there is a lot of information. I'm finding it really hard to carry on now, Marcus, with your snide comments in the background. But I will demonstrate a level of professionalism. Yes, yeah, so unsurprisingly, there's a lot of information. <laughs> unsurprisingly, there's a lot of information appearing relating to building web applications for the iPhone. There is, for example, an iPhone gallery consisting of hundreds of screenshots of the iPhone. It is great if you want a kind of, um, if you want to mirror the look and feel of the iPhone in your um, application. If you're building an iPhone application, then you can you can see all of the kind of interface elements and stuff like that, and follow it as closely as possible using those screenshots. There's also an iPhone developer guide, which Apple have finally released, that provides loads of great advice. And finally, you also might want to check out the iPhoney, a piece of software that replicates some of the iPhone uh, web browsing functionality and lets you see what your application might finally look like. So uh, there's loads of stuff around at the moment, which is why I felt I ought to give it, um, give, it, give it a mention on the show. Of course, whether it's worthwhile developing for the iPhone at this stage is another matter entirely. Um, I guess if you're trying to focus on the kind of tech-savvy audience that have purchased the iPhone at this early stage, then great, yeah, go for your life. Um, otherwise, it might be better to wait until the iPhone becomes a bit more mainstream or mobile phones start to offer the same level of web experience that the iPhone does. So, but... I thought it was worth a mention, as I know some of you out there are fiddling with iPhone applications. And if I had the time, I would be doing the same thing. But of course, now I'm an important author. I don't have time for that kind of thing. You don't become an important author until you've written the book, Paul. Oh, am I getting ahead of myself here? You don't even become an important author then. You become an author. (laughs) Okay. How do I become an important author? Uh, You probably have to have a badge or something. Okay, it's a special important author badge. Right, next up, um, At Media Podcast. I was really gutted this year that I missed At Media. Well, actually, I say gutted. I was on a really pleasant family holiday in Cornwall with Mediterranean-type weather, so I can't really complain. However, I did miss um, a great lineup of speakers talking about some amazing subjects. And I was particularly depressed um, to have to miss uh, Jesse James Garrett's keynote on uh, Beyond Ajax and Diabolical Design, The Devil is in the Details by Jason Santamaria. So, you can imagine I was very happy to hear that this week the recording of the app media sessions are beginning to filter out um, for you to download and listen to. However, note that I did not call them a podcast, despite the fact that they call them a podcast, because there is no feed associated with these audio recordings you just download them off the site which personally i find horribly frustrating and it really annoys me when people say oh yes we've released a podcast when there is no feed associated with it grump grump miserable miserable (laughs) setting that little moan aside it was great to be able to listen to these speakers even though i did not attend the conference and i'm not complaining because they are giving away basically um all of this for free so you can't complain about that 
Um, I would strongly encourage you to listen to some of those uh, talks. There are some of the uh, leaders in the industry talking about some really cool stuff and download them and listen to them for yourself. Okay, next up um, is a little kind of news story about common mistakes in web copy. Um, Although we would prefer to avoid it, the reality is that as web designers, we write far more copy than we would like to admit. And as for those of us that own websites, a substantial part of our responsibility is about writing good copy. Now, we talked on the show before about writing good copy, but our focus has mainly been on style rather than technical detail. But this week, I came across a post about kind of common grammatical errors, not kind of the the silly ones, but, you know, useful ones. Um, I, I guess that's why I really like this post, that it wasn't focusing on the silly details of grammar that don't really apply to, uh, particularly well to the conversational tone of the web. Instead, it focused on errors such as when you should use me, myself, or I, or what the difference is between IE and EG. So those kinds of really common mistakes that dumbos like me make quite a lot. Um well, come come in on this, Paul. Grammar is either right or wrong. It's not, you know, it might not work for the web. I disagree. I, I would no. I agree that grammar is either right or wrong. But I think there is a place for purposefully un- ignoring certain kind of. Uh, perhaps it's more writing styles than grammar, but some of the stuff. Um, yeah. That's my personal opinion, that, that, that stuff you write for the web should be much more familiar than stuff you write offline. And sometimes formal grammar can be... Um, I'm going to stop talking because I don't know what I'm talking about, really. But that, that would be my feeling, personally. That worked. That really worked, that comment. I got you rambling beautifully. It's great. you talking... Paul talking about grammar. Marvellous. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> it's not your strongest suit, is it? Let's no. be honest. No, it's not. That's that's perfectly true. But I do feel, okay, it really annoys me. You read some of these articles and they, they get into long, rambling, crappy debates about silly punctuation and pointless little things that, to be frank, I don't give a monkey's ass about. The reason I like think, this... Sorry, so I'm saying some people think that's the most important thing of all, though, the little teeny-weeny details of it. And they're wrong, and that's fine. But, but all sets, they're wrong, so that's it. Yes, but what I liked about this article is the stuff that he brought up in this article was stuff that I thought, oh, yeah, I made that mistake, and I would like to get it right. So there. Enough said. Anyway, Jeffrey Zeldman, he says, moving on after he's dug such an enormous hole. Jeffrey Zeldman has written a post entitled, Let There Be Web Divisions. Um, so if you're somebody that is responsible for deciding who should manage your corporate website, then... I'm demanding that you read this article. Demanding, I tell you. Um, Always demand. If I, I'm, I'm very demanding, yes, that is true. Um, if you are a mere foot soldier, then it might not be as relevant to you, but it's still a good read nonetheless. Basically, Jeffrey is proposing that a company website should not sit under either IT or marketing, as it does traditionally, but should be a division in its own right. I'm not yeah, going to repeat... Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to repeat all of Zelman's logic, but I have to say that I wholeheartedly agree with every word from his keyboard. I was going to say mouth, but it was a written post. Um, websites are far too multidisciplined to sit comfortably under either department, 
and too important to be caught up in the endless tug of war that that inevitably ensues when one department has it over another. So good stuff, um, Mr. Zellman. I approve of your. That's post. actually happened with one of our clients recently, hasn't it? Yeah, which is very cool. Where did it sit? It used to sit under IT, didn't it? Oh, well, it was a mixture of the two, wasn't it? Our contact was an IT bod, but we used to get um, sort of orders from marketing a lot. And now, um, basically, it's all gone under new media or something like that. Mm. So it's a whole division. Very cool. Which is very sensible. Good stuff. Okay, I think that about wraps up the news. Let's move on, Marcus, to your exciting segment of the show. Okay, I thought, well, Paul already mentioned it. I'm going to talk about information architecture and basically doing a review of an existing site. Uh, I'm currently in the process of doing this for um, a new Headscape client, and I've done a fair bit of it over the years, but I found myself particularly enjoying this one, so I thought I'd waffle on about it for 10 minutes or so. Um, we've covered various aspects of information architecture work in previous podcasts, i.e. the different things you can do, expert review, stakeholder interviews, card sorting, wireframe testing, that kind of thing. This particular chat I'm going to have um, basically is just looking at the expert review. I think it's worth explaining what I mean by that. When we carry out an expert review, we're effectively analysing a client's existing site content, site structure, and naming conventions with a view to creating a new information architecture based on our experience of using and developing websites in the past. This is definitely a collaborative process with the client. It has to be because we, we can make logical kind of usability-based um, decisions, but we can't claim to be experts in that client's particular field. So it has to be a kind of bit of to and fro. First things first, um, I make sure before I start um, delving into um, a review of, of the information, information architecture that I've got a good grasp of a number of things. Um, so at, at a kickoff me- meeting, I'm looking for the following, the following things, really, which are target audience, which is probably the most crucial uh, thing you need to know uh, when, when you're reviewing an information architecture or creating a new information architecture. Um, it may be the existing site caters for one group really well, but another one, it's rubbish. So you kind of need to know that. You also need to know the site aims. Uh, is, there, is there a particular process that the client wants users to go through? They want to, I don't know, they, they want them to read some stuff uh, about the company and then they want them to buy something or they want them to contact them. You need to know what that process is so that you can kind of handhold users through the site. You also need to look at design a little bit. Uh, horizontal navigation, uh, top level, is, is a really important one because um, obviously it, it can be limited. There's only so much space you can fit in horizontally. So if you're looking at 14 top-level sections, which wouldn't be a good idea in the first place, but say if you were, then horizontal navigation would become tricky. Um, Homepage requirements are another one. You need to kind of find out what the real uh, sort of killer content is um, or killer applications, whatever, um, that the the site offers so that you can make sure that there, there are... Shortcuts from the homepage because uh, I think I think saying saying what the content on the homepage is, what the links are from it, it, it isn't only about the the main navigation; it's also about shortcuts. Um, and finally, have a general discussion about content and site structure. See what the client thinks is their, their important content and what isn't, because there might be a load of stuff in there that you know, that they may be happy to dump, uh, but you wouldn't know that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Okay, so the next thing I've actually sort of got all that information and we'll start start working on the on the uh, on the review. Very first thing I always do is map out the existing site's information architecture. Now this is a really boring, slow, laborious task, but it's I find um, it's the best way to not only learn about a site's content and structure, but also to understand what they do and what they offer. Are you going to say something there, Paul? No, He's no, not at all. Asleep. I, no, I haven't fallen asleep. I was, I was thinking you're so much better at this than I am, because <laughs> I, I get so bored so quickly that that when it comes to this particular say, I can't say I shouldn't say this because there probably were clients listening to this show that I've done information architecture work for, but I can't say I've been through a site and mapped out the entire existing site. I'm I'm too damn lazy. When I say the entire existing site, obviously, if we're talking about 10,000 pages, then I wouldn't map out the entire site. But I would go down to at least the fourth level. So if homepage is level one, uh, and then you've got the top level, which is level two, under that and under that, I would go that far down. Um, basically, because it, it makes you understand exactly what this client, this organization, this company, whatever, what they've got. I mean, okay, okay, there may be missing bits in there, but then they should have told you what those missing bits are are at the uh, um, at the kickoff meeting. So it's even though it does take a long time, you think, what am I doing this for? It's it's mainly for you. It's not for them. They know what their site structure is, but um, you don't. So anyway, moving on. I've I've given myself the heading "Be logical, Captain," um, which I guess this is kind of relating to the fact that usually the goal of this type of exercise is to a stream. By the way, content. sorry, I do need to interrupt. That was a bad joke. <laughs> well, you know, just, somebody somebody had to come out and say that it was a bad joke, and so I felt that obviously the listener isn't in a position to do that. So, so I felt it was my obligation. Now, please carry yeah. on. You, you, you were the the standard bearer for the listener then. Mm, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, basically, what, what you're trying to do in any information exercise, I think, pretty much every time, is streamline content. I kind of make it smaller, um, move it into groups that work together and name those groups, label those groups so that users will understand what's inside them. Sites that have been kind of around for a few years and people have been adding a bit here and adding a bit there tend to sort of spread their content all over the place. They're not in you know, kind of nice compact groups. So because of that, it's usually fairly easy but time-consuming to group content together. And there are various methods for doing this. All I tend to do is print out the existing site IA, which I've just done, um, which I usually create in Excel unless it's a particularly small site, then I might do it in Visio. But Excel kind of works for me. And then I just scribble all over that printout until I'm happy. I'll be sort of labeling this in number ones and that will be number twos and that kind of thing. I've said number ones and number twos on the podcast. That's <laughs> making people giggle internally. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, oh, God. Some people like to use kind of cloud-type cluster diagrams, either on paper or using software. Or there's always the age-old method of creating cards, where each page mm. is page name is written on a scrap of paper. Uh, it's a little, little bit like doing card sorting on your own, where you're grouping cards into piles and giving names to each pile. I, I remember you doing that with uh, the National Trust, I believe, Paul. Yes, I did. Um, named wrote every every single page name on a piece of paper and spread them all across the floor and I, and to this day i did that what when did i do that back before well, it must have been about yeah before then of somewhere around there anyway and um to this day i think that that works best for me personally 
I, whenever I do it on screen, it doesn't. It's not as good. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I do it. I do it on paper, but I mean, I, I do it. I do. I do it on the printout of the existing IA and sort of. Ah, um, right. Okay. Sort of draw boxes around things and stuff like that. But it's whatever works for you, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Moving on. Naming, which is you know kind of the uh, next to structure, is the most important part of information architecture or labeling, as some people call it. Um, we come from, Headscape comes from the it does exactly what it says on the tin school of page or section naming. Uh, marketing departments often don't. Uh, a, good, a good example of this, which we came up um, when we were doing, doing some work for um, a client last summer, is, that, is the trend at the moment to use verbs instead of, name, uh, instead of nouns on section names. Uh, I remember this particular client wanting to call a, a site section Enjoy, which... Uh, <laughs> basically covered leisure activities and no prizes for guessing what we recommended which was of course leisure activities which they went for in the end but you know what does enjoy mean it means nothing at all um it's just you know nice sounding words that mean nothing so yes, basically you're, they... en- you're engaging with people on an emotional level <sighs> yes yes what they want is to know what's in there yeah label should be as descriptive as possible full stop but sometimes this can be difficult when a there isn't much space Going back to the horizontal navigation example that I, me- I mentioned earlier, for example, probably the most descriptive title would be um, for registering for a newsletter would be how to register for our newsletter. But that's not going to fit on the average button, and even newsletter resi- registration might struggle a bit if it was a top-level link. I would go for just newsletter. Uh, mm. that's, it's fairly obvious that the content underneath is going to relate to the organization's newsletter and should logically include registration. Whereas register, which people you often see, leaves user asking a question, register for what? Because uh, mm. there might be things they can register for. So it's just logical. That's why I come back to my be logical captain. Um, <laughs> and also, the next, the next point, and this is, this is slight, slightly trickier, is sometimes sites are so big that the main sections include too much differing content to be labeled descriptively. So you can't call it what it actually is underneath because there's too many different things underneath. In that case, you've kind of got to look at other ways of um, describing what's under there. I mean, one, one example I've seen recently is the entire, um, all the main sections of the site were replicated as shortcuts on the home page, and each one of those shortcuts had lots of descriptive words underneath to say, not that, it wasn't even a, a kind of paragraph description, it was literally like keywords, which I thought worked quite well. Um, and alternatively, alternatively, you can. Uh, uh, create sort of drop-down navigation that displays the lower-level links as well, uh, which I, I quite like, uh, but there are issues with usability and accessibility with doing that. Hmm. Um, nearly there. Section ordering is the next thing I was looking at, um, which, which literally means where, they, where do they appear? Which What's the top level? What's the first one? What's the next one? What's the one after that? And this, I think this should follow some sort of desired path through the site. Uh, for example, the client may want users to firstly get a bit of background, then followed by an understanding of what, what the organisation offers, followed by some examples of previous work, and then with a view to finally making contact. And I have to say I used the Headscape website as, as well, I was thinking of the Headscape website when I, when I wrote this down. And that kind of translates to about us first, followed by services, followed by case studies, followed by contact us. Again, just kind of logical. But one thing to think of um, when you're doing that is that there are certain conventions. We talk about design conventions a lot, but there are also um, information architecture conventions. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Users don't want to have to think. They want to look, look and understand straight away. And following conventions helps with the process. For example, many sites include um, About Us sections as the first main section. This usually includes, I don't know, a bit of history, annual reports, job vacancies, contact details, that kind of thing. So users looking for that type of information, they want to look at the job vacancies, say, will go straight to About Us. It's because that's what happens on nearly all the websites they go to. So basically, make sure you do that. So if you put About Us, or if you decide to call it just About, say, or you put it on the right-hand side of the navigation, you're making it difficult for that user. So don't do it, basically. Final point, collaborate. Well, I already mentioned this. You've got to collaborate with your client. When you created that first draft, you then need to, it needs to be reviewed by the client, discussed and iterated back and forth until everyone's happy. Um, certainly take on board any changes that are based on your lack of understanding of what the client does, but be prepared to stand your ground on issues relating to web conventions and usability, basically all the expert stuff that they're paying you for. So that's about it, really. Good stuff. Excellent. Okay, let's move on then. Okay, so like um, Marcus, I'm going to take something that I've been working on over the last week or so and talk about that. Because I gave a presentation to a board of directors explaining the process that we go through um, when we develop a new design for a website. And a large proportion of that presentation focused on the issue of brand identity and how we take a brand online. Um, now, this organization had a really well-developed, thick, tome-like style guide um, that we spent a long time and a lot of effort getting that guide to work online. And my presentation talked about the various steps involved, and it occurred to me that it might be interesting as a podcast section. Now, of course, not all style guides are huge, tome-like books. Some are nothing more than a logo and some colors. However, with only a few exceptions, they all tend to be written with print in mind rather than the web. Um, sizes are set in millimeters and not pixels. Logos um, don't display well at 72 dot per inch and colors, well, just often don't work very well on screen. Um, and many designers feel that uh, style guides kind of limit their creativity. But I would argue that actually you have to be extremely creative to get some of those guides to work well on the web. So what I've done is I've um, identified four areas that can be particularly challenging and I want to give you a few pointers on each of those areas and how how we cho choose to deal with them oftentimes. So the first one up is typography. Style guides often set fonts um, uh, and those fonts are rarely as universal as those found on the web. Generally speaking, there's not um, much you can do about that except explain the limitations to the client that, you know, only a limited number of fonts are available online. And, you know, if you pick if your style guide has got font that isn't included in that list, then sorry, you're stuffed. And normally speaking, a client will accept this as inevitable. However, once in a blue moon, you come across a client that starts insisting um, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous and you find that some clients start talking about um, having headers as um, images so that they can use their corporate font. Now, although it's possible to work around these limitations of web-based fonts using images, for example, and also techniques um, such as CIFA, you also need to consider questions of legibility. The trouble is that um, often the fonts selected in style guides are picked because they look good in print. However, not all fonts that look good in a print resolution work well when reduced to a screen resolution. They often pixelate and become difficult to read, especially at smaller sizes. 
So if you are considering using a corporate font, um, make sure that it works reasonably well um, when reduced to a small size in order to maintain legibility on your site. The next area that comes up a lot is layout. Layout can be another tricky area um, when it comes to applying what you find in a print style guide to the web. Um, the guide might suggest three column layout and stipulate the position of the logo and all kinds of things. Although where possible it's good to stick with these recommendations, you should not do so when they conflict with web conventions. For example, I recently worked on a project, um, in fact the same project I gave the presentation for, where the style guide specified that the logo should be positioned in top, the top right corner. Unfortunately, it's become a convention on the web to display the logo in the top left corner and the search box in the top right. Both myself and the client agreed that conforming to the web convention was more important than uh, sticking rigidly to the guidelines, um, and so we made the decision to change it. This decision was made easier by the fact that we uh, had stuck to the guidelines very closely in other areas, so this little discrepancy wasn't that big a deal, if that makes sense. Another thing to be wary of in regards to layout is that um, that the guidelines that you'll get in a print style guide are often biased towards an A4 portrait style layout, you know, like you know, letterheads and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, it also works on the assumption that you have perfect pic pixel control over positioning. Neither of these assumptions are correct when it comes to the web. So in short, I think the guidelines about layout need to be taken with a huge pinch of salt. It is extremely hard to replicate them faithfully on the web. Um, and as long as uh, there are areas of branding, you know, the other areas of branding you've represented well and you've kept the style guide, then I think, you know, taking a few liberties when it comes to now won't be the end of the world. Logos. Okay, unfortunately, um, where you may be able to get away with some changes to say layout, like we've already talked about, you rarely get that kind of flexibility when it comes to logos. Um, they can prove an incredibly challenging area when the logo isn't produced with the web in mind. A poorly designed logo become, can become illegible when reduced down in size. And although I sympathize with designers who have to deal with bad logos, and believe me, I've dealt with a few in my time, I would argue that the logo is so central to the overall brand identity, which, let's face it, is a lot more than just a website. It, it carries on into print material, into the side of buses and all kinds of different things, um, that changing it really is out of the question. However, although you can't change the logo as such, minor tweaks um, to correct poor web rendering, I believe, should be acceptable and possible. So... I've been known in the past to tweak, say, font sizes, weighting, spacing, um, in order to aid legibility at smaller sizes. I've also um, been known to make major, ch major, minor changes to color, which actually brings us nicely on to um, my final point, which is color. Gone are the days where we've had to worry about web safe palettes. However, that does not mean that um, we don't need to give color guidelines from a print style guide a second thought there are still two major considerations you need to take into account when working with color guidelines the first is the difference you see in how color is displayed now i've spoken uh, about color display numerous times before and i won't repeat myself here 
However, the fact is that color can appear either darker or lighter on some monitors, um, while in print, color is exactly the way that you set it up to be. You don't get differences. You know, one person picks up a brochure um, and they will see it in the same way as another person will, taking into account things like color blindness, etc. Um, so color can be a very difficult area when you take into account different monitors. The only solution to this problem is to manually adjust colors so they sit nearer the middle of the brightness range. So make light colors slightly darker and dark colors slightly lighter. That way you can ensure if you've got a monitor that's particularly dark or particularly light that those colors will still be viewable. Another aspect of color um, that I've talked about before is color bleed. This is explained brilliantly in a 24 Ways article by uh, Jason Santamaria and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. In essence, it means that the smaller the text or smaller text, um, sorry, let me start that again. In essence, it means the smaller the text, the more the color of that text is influenced by its surrounding colors. Text on a white background becomes lighter and text on a dark background becomes darker. And the problem is exaggerated the smaller the text gets. Again, in order to counteract this problem, um, it may be necessary to manually adjust the brightness of a color when um, using it with smaller text. You cannot rely solely on Pantone numbers supplied in the style guide. So that's really about what I want to say. The, I guess the key to success um, when bringing a brand online is to pick and choose your battles. Keep in mind that the ultimate aim um, is to associate the website with other marketing collateral in the minds of the target audience. Making this association does not require, in my opinion, compliance to every aspect of the style guide. But um, if you comply closely to some areas, this can give you more flexibility in others without significantly uh, damaging the brand. So where you can comply closely, do so, because there are going to be other areas where it's more difficult. Okay, and I think that about sums up my thoughts on that. Okay, so as I said at the start of the show, this week we have Ian Lloyd giving us an introduction to the world of screen readers. Um, as the same with Marcus, I remember vividly the first time I heard a screen reader being used. I was absolutely gobsmacked at how painful an experience it was. And to be frank, even to this day, I'm absolutely amazed that anyone can use the things efficiently. Um, it stuck, struck me that many of you listening to the show might have never heard a screen reader before. Hearing what a blind person has to work with really made me think seriously about um, accessibility, and I think it will you too. So I thought I'll get in on the show and to give you a taster. So in Ian's segment, um, he talks through some of the classic problems that screen reader users um, experience. Unfortunately, some of it is best understood if you can actually see the examples of what he's doing. Um, so in order to get around this problem, Ian has made a screencast to accompany the audio you're about to hear. Now, to be honest, there was too much detail in the screencast for me to really kind of shove it on YouTube or turn it into a video podcast. It would have been too small a window. You really need the whole window to be able to see what's going on. So I have put a link where you can download um, this um yeah this particular movie file if you want to see the pictures as well you can it does work without it but it will help the link is i believe <laughs> at boagworld.com forward slash forward slash screen reader dot mov it's a movie file if for some reason i've got that url wrong 
go along to the show notes and there'll be a link in there that will be correct. Okay, so this is what Ian had to say. Hello Paul, hello Marcus and hello to listeners of Boag World. This is the Ask the Expert section and today I'm going to be talking about screen readers. Now, I don't actually qualify myself as an expert screen reader user simply because I don't use one on a day-to-day basis because I'm not forced to. I do have good vision. As such, the way that I would use a screen reader will be different from someone who has to use it on a day-to-day basis. That said, I think it's still useful to demonstrate um, to people what a screen reader sounds like. And the reason for this is that, uh, as far as I'm aware, on your podcast, although you've talked about accessibility a lot and mentioned screen readers, I don't believe we've ever had a demonstration of what they actually are like for people when uh, a page isn't built correctly. So today I'm going to be demonstrating a few problems using a screen reader. I'm also going to be doing this as a video. So this is a, a screencast and um, I understand that at the end of this you will be providing a URL for listeners so that they can access this and view what's happening on screen. Because of course it's, it's, um, it's all well and good to listen to some of this stuff but really to get the full context it would be good to actually see the video as well. I will try my best to describe what's actually happening on screen throughout this podcast though. Now the first example we're going to look at is Amazon.com and uh, somewhat cheekily I've brought up the page for my book on Amazon and uh, just having a look around at uh, what I can find on the screen and there are some issues there so let's have a look at this oh so that's not too bad I've um, just found an image there and it's announced it correctly because it's found a suitable alt attribute but underneath there are a couple of thumbnail images which if I'm uh, if I want to access those it gives me a whole different well, here for yourself. Tab, see larger image link. Tab, I slash 11TXA6TZ5VL, underline AA30, underline link graphic. Hmm, doesn't make an awful lot of sense, does it? Let's try the next image. Tab, B2 slash 723X6.8.0B9B7E0B22110, underline AA30, under tab, tab, tab. So, what's happening there? Well, it's quite simple. There's no alt attribute defined for that image. And so JAWS tries to fill in the gap. And, uh, oh, I didn't mention earlier, JAWS is the name of the screen reader that I'm using. So it tries to fill in the gaps because it doesn't have an alt attribute. It uses the file name instead. And the file name, as is often the case on Amazon, is a right load of old gobbledygook. So it doesn't give you any useful information about that image. And here's another example of the same thing. Pictures from Vanfus 2005. Malvern thumb slash zero thumb slash one thumb slash two thumb slash three thumb slash four thumb slash five thumb escape. So this is actually um, a photo gallery um, with a bunch of thumbnail images. Hence it's reading thumbs because that's where the folder where the thumbnail is actually in. And it's it's reading them sequentially as well. doesn't sound quite as painful as the uh, the Amazon example, but it's still doesn't tell you any useful information about the images on the page. Tab, thumb slash one link graphic. Tab, thumb slash two link graphic. Tab, thumb slash three link graphic. So let's have a listen to a slightly improved version of that. Page has one heading and 16 links. Pictures from Vanfus 2005. Malvern vertical bar photo slash escape. Tab, intrepid travelers dash dutch comedy that went around the world link graphic. 
Tab. Super beefed up synchro left parent 4WDT. Tab. 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 The mystery machine driven by Scooby Link graphic. So, if we were to look at that, and on the video I'm actually showing the page with the star sheet disabled and the alt attributes uh, displaying in line next to the image. As you could hear in that, that second example, it was far more usable. You could actually understand what the image was about as long as you understood some of the uh, VW terminology that's in there. Whereas in the first example, none of the images actually had alt attributes, so it was just trying to find, just trying to read out the uh, the location of the file. So let's have a look at another example. Tools to navigate 100%. Page has no links. Look like links, but are not links. Dot dot dot. These look like links, but really aren't. Colon is. Now, what I'm looking at on screen is a page that seems to have a page full of links. But if you are listening carefully to uh, the beginning of that, the screen reader thought otherwise. I'll just try and find that again for you. Hundred percent. Page has no links. Look. According to the screen reader, the page doesn't have any links. And the reason it thinks that is because, well, there aren't any links. What's actually happening is we have a whole bunch of text on the page that is styled using CSS and the, beha the behavior for the link is added using JavaScript. So we have a span element that has an on-click event, location.href equals somewhere.html. And that's wrapped around the uh, text that says, this is a link, click me. Um, but of course it's not a link. The screen reader can't find it because it's not an ahref. It's just something else that's been styled to look like a link and behave like a link. But it's not. Thankfully that's not too common. But uh, you have to just be aware that what may look great on screen for you may not be any use to someone using a screen reader. You have to use the right markup for the job. So, you could have a page that's full of links that say click, click here. But course that's another problem all in itself. Let's have a listen to that. Tab click here shift 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 tab click here to view 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 link. Yes. So the, I mean the problem there is it doesn't give you any information at all. Um, and this is actually still quite common. In fact just yesterday I was uh, looking at Facebook.com for my sins and uh, I was actually quite shocked to find that they were using a lot of this um, where the link phrase was click here as opposed to the uh, the phrase that you would really want to have so for example instead of saying click here for more information and having click here as the link phrase you would have for more information about our products that would be say that would be the link phrase um, but if you just use click here and you've got a whole page of links that's, that that reads click here this is what you get Shift, shift, tab, click here to view, 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 tab. Basically, completely unusable. Now the next example I have is of a form. And in this example, uh, the form has been laid out using a table. Thankfully, these days, tables are being used less for layout and people are using CSS for page layouts. However, for forms, it's still not uncommon to see someone put a table in there. And, uh... 100%. Okay, so in this example, uh, what I'm looking at on screen is what appears to be, um... Well, four text inputs, and then there is a uh, radio button. 
and uh, it's basically some asking some personal information it's your first name, your surname, your age, uh, place of birth and then a question, do you have a nut allergy? the answers being no, yes or don't know so let's hear what the screen reader makes of this come on wake up page has no links, untitled table with two columns and five rows to escape tab surname slash family name colon edit already we're hitting a problem because the first field that I tab to I can see on screen is actually the first name but the screen reader believed that to be the surname colon edit let's just go back a sec a little, a little bit here family name colon edit surname tab edit so I've now tabbed to the second field which is the surname and it didn't announce anything so let's tab to the next field tab town slash city of birth colon edit again it's getting it wrong I've actually tabbed to the field that says the age next birthday tab edit and now I'm in the town stroke city of birth field and it hasn't told me anything tab yes radio button tab don't know radio two of three shift tab yes radio one shift tab edit this is all a bit confusing here. I'm just sort of tabbing backwards and forwards to try and work out what's going on, which is probably what would happen if someone was actually using this for real. Do you have a nut allergy? Aha, uh -huh. right, okay, so it's asking me the question, do I have a nut allergy? Tab, yes, radio, button, nut. Okay, so that thinks I'm at the yes radio button, but I'm looking at it on screen and it says no. So what's going on here? Now this is going to be a difficult one to explain um, on the podcast, this is probably the, one of the sections where you really need to see the video. But what's actually happened here is we've got a table to lay out the page, and the uh, the text sits above the, the the text input. So, for example, where we're asking for first name, the the text that says first name is in the uh, first column, and the input that relates to that is in a column underneath. Sorry, is in a table cell underneath it in the next table row. Now, the reason this is causing a problem is because if you were to actually linearize that table, in other words, look at it in the in the order of the source code, you get a very, very different view of it. And uh, this is what happens with the screen reader. So now if I'm if I were to look at this uh, this form and read it out in a linear fashion, it goes like this first name, surname then there is the form input for the first name, then the form input for the surname. Then we have age, then we have town, and then we have the form input for age, and the form input for town, and so on. Now the problem is that the screen reader expects the text for that input to appear before that input, and because of the way this has been laid out, it really, really gets things confused. As I said, this is quite a difficult one to explain on the podcast, but if you look at the, the video clip, you'll see why this is causing a problem. The, the big problem here is that you may be asking a question, as we have here, that says, do you have a nut allergy? And the answers are no, yes, and don't know. But if you do actually put the form elements in the wrong order, you're going to have a problem. And the reason is, obviously, with a nut, a nut allergy, that can be a life or death situation. You could be filling out a form, as a blind user, and you select what you think is the uh, yes radio button, but because the form has been poorly laid out and doesn't have label elements that are actually helping to uh, enforce the accessibility, you may actually have been uh, selecting the no checkbox, and it really could be a life or death situation. 
it may not be as bad as that, but it could end up in you perhaps booking the wrong the wrong hotel location or or date. Um, so you have to be very very careful with the the the, uh, the form form layout. Okay, one final example. Now everyone's talking about Ajax. It's the buzzword of the moment. Unfortunately, it's it's something that is really not very good for screen reader users. And the reason for this is that uh, anything that is updated on the page after page load, it's very, very problematic to pass on to the screen readers. Now, the example I'm going to give here is uh, a fairly simple one, and it's the Google Suggest page. What Google Suggest does is let you type in your search phrase, and as you type, it's calling back to the server, finding suggestions for you, which it then populates in uh, a list underneath the, uh, the search input. So let's have a listen to that. Google search edit type and text. T H I S space I S space A space T E S T. So I've just typed. This is a test, and on screen underneath that is a, uh, a whole bunch of uh, suggestions that it's found. But if I try and actually access any of those using the keyboard, Google search edit. Google search edit type and text. Google search edit. Google search edit. Google search edit. It's actually doing nothing. On the screen I can see that it's actually going up and down the options, but to the screen reader it's getting nothing back at all, nothing useful at all. Google search edit, Google search edit, type and text. But thankfully with uh, Google Suggest this is something that you can opt out of. You don't have to use Google Suggest, it's not enforced on you. But it's a very, very simple example, and it just goes to show that a very, very simple technique like this can be basically completely unusable for someone using a screen reader. So that was just a few examples. Um, hopefully you get, you've had an, uh, an indication of how uh, a poorly built website or web page can affect a user. Um, the bottom line is keep listening to the podcast, keep doing things right, keep using good markup and um, if you can test your own web pages or websites using a demo version of JAWS. Um, it really does pay dividends to, to, to find out how this works or doesn't work. So thank you very much. I hope this has been useful. And uh, I look forward to uh, the next podcast, Paul. Thanks, guys. So there you go. Thanks very much, Ian. Good stuff. Ah, oh, just screen readers. Ah, bad, bad things. I mean, can you imagine having well, to deal with that the whole time? They're good things in essence, but yes, um, it would... Uh... Uh, yeah, they do my head in, but no, I suppose it's because I don't have to use one. And if I did, then I yeah. guess they would be a very useful tool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they're not useful. I'm just saying, boy, that must be a hard transition to make. And and made ten times worse by badly designed sites that don't take it into account. Yeah. So, there you go. Marcus, do you have a joke for us this week? I do. Um, this is from Dev in Honolulu. Um Excellent introduction, Dev. I'll just read, read the introduction uh, to his email. Hey, Marcus. First, I just wanted to say that the Boag World podcast is one of the best podcasts in the history of podcasting. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, like that. So anyway, here's his joke. Um, a 90-year-old man said to his doctor, I've never felt better. I have an 18-year-old bride who is pregnant with my child. What do you think about that? The doctor considered his question for a minute and then said... I have an elderly friend who is a hunter and never misses a season. One day, when he was going out in a bit of a hurry, he accidentally picked up his umbrella instead of his gun. When he got to the creek, he saw a rabbit sitting beside the stream. He raised his umbrella and went bang, bang, and the rabbit fell dead. What do you think of that?
90-year-old replied, I'd say somebody else killed that rabbit. My point exactly, the doctor said. <laughs> That's a good joke, Deb. I like that one. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Very good. Ian, well, thank you. I have to say say that um, Ian Lasky sending me sending me more and more jokes that I can't I cannot repeat online. But thanks, Ian. I'm I'm laughing a lot. <laughs> You've got to forward those on to me. I want to see them too. Okay. Ian's a bad influence on you. He's sending you these rude jokes. <laughs> Disgraceful. Okay, so that about wraps it up. As normal, you can get to the show notes at boagworld.com forward slash podcast. Um, also, don't forget, check out the forum, especially with the new um, thread about the so somebody's writing a book, I believe. Um, so that's at <laughs> boagworld.com forward slash forum. Um, I've got some bad news that I need to break to our audience that will be distraught. That Unfortunately, there will be no show next week as I'm away speaking at the Institutional Web Management Workshop. Doesn't that sound like a barrel of fun? Actually, it's quite a good conference, um, and I'm looking forward to attending. He says, backpedaling quickly. Just the title, Institutional Web Management Workshop, does not sound exciting compared to deconstruct at media. You know, just doesn't do it, does it, really? They need to work on their title. Have a word when you're down there. Say, oi. I will it. do. Yeah. So if you happen to be going to that excitingly titled event, then um, do drop me a line because I'd love to meet up with you. So that'd be cool. Now, obviously, Marcus could have done the show by himself next week, but he doesn't care enough about you to bother. No, I'm far too busy. That's oh, that's is. what it is. Oh, okay. I am actually. Next Tuesday, I'm going to North Wales. I'm driving about 550 miles in one day, which yeah. I know to America is kind of going to work. But I mean, uh, <laughs> for me, it's a long way. Yeah, that is a long way, actually. Especially, mm. what they don't take into account is that the, the number of miles isn't that far, but when you're driving down English roads and going at three miles an hour, it takes a long time to get anywhere. But there you go. <laughs> so, fact, um, so that's... Sure, get, so, sorry, for sorry, fact, I, I can nearly get all the way on motorways or freeways. Oh, well, that's good. That helps. Yeah. So, yeah, that's about it for this week's show. I'm sorry about next week. Uh, to be honest, it, it's the summer. Different things come up. People are away on holiday. I think there's one other um, date in August that we can't do, so there'll be a couple missing between now and our 100th episode, which will be in October some point. Um, so there you go. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again, not next week, but the week after, which will be the week of the 23rd.